Hello and welcome to Highlander Newsroom, a program that discusses articles and issues covered in the Highlander newspaper at UC Riverside. My name is Madison Rines and I'm the editor-in-chief at the Highlander and your host for today. I'm joined by Kevin Contreras, the sports editor, Evelyn Homan, the opinions editor, and Brenda Hovell, the assistant radar editor. We have a few interesting topics lined up for today, so let's go ahead and get started. First up in this issue, we have an article written by contributing writer Haru Chang and assistant news editor Amory Alvarez, who gave a student's guide on the conflict in Ukraine. They also had the opportunity to interview Paul Denieri, a UCR professor of political science and international policy, specializing in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. The article mentions how ineffective sanctions on Russia will be, on, mentions how ineffective sanctions on Russia will be and how refugees are seeing a difference in treatment based on their race. Have you been keeping up with what has been happening in Ukraine? Um, and then what do you think about the efficacy of the sanctions, Brenda? Um, I think it's really scary what's happening right now. And I think with our mentality, we feel like there can't be a war because we're living in such a modern age right now. It's like, oh, there's a war going on. And it's kind of unbelievable to us, but that it's escalating really quickly. And I don't know how or when the U.S. is going to get involved. Um, but I think right now we are waiting for it to just see how it progresses. And with the sanctions, I'm not really familiar. I don't have a lot of knowledge on it, but I do hope that they help in order to stop what's going on. But with right now with Russia, they just keep going in full force into Ukraine. And it's just really scary just seeing how all of these civilians, they're dying because of this and all of Ukraine's troops are just going down. So. Hopefully, in the future, you know, it turns out it just ends soon, but I don't think it is going to. Yeah. Evelyn? Yeah, something that's really interesting about, like, this war in particular is how, like, unlike wars, like, previously, like, social media and the access to the internet in Ukraine and just around the world, like, we're able to pretty much see, like, live what's going on, which we've never really had before in terms of like a war, which I think is why, you know, even though, like no matter where you live, it's like frightening to watch because you don't want to watch like human, like the crimes against humanity on a like large mass scale. And yet like they're populating our Twitter and Instagram feeds every day because that's just what's going on and people need to know about it. But it's kind of a double-edged sword because for as much as it's like, you know, like hard to like watch these like terrible things go on. It's also like been to the benefit, I think, of Ukraine that they're able to essentially like because they're able to like show things live, um, like what's going on on social media, they're essentially able to like just it's like counter any Russian propaganda that's like, oh, we had like the right to invade Ukraine because X, Y, Z. But then you're actually seeing like that propaganda in comparison to like the live action of what's actually going on and like what people in Ukraine are facing. And I think it's it's incredibly interesting the role that social media is playing in this war and how it's both like helping, like it's helping Ukraine and also like hurting everyone else as well because it's just so hard to watch all these things go on at once. I know I've been following it like extensively, just even though I don't know anyone in Ukraine outside of like I have a friend who has like an aunt in Ukraine. Um, so I've been worried like for her family, but just like me myself in America, it's nice to know like, you know, you're safe, but it's also hard to watch because everyone has their own opinions on how the situation could go or like what we should do. But the reality is it's so hard to predict like what could happen next. And I think that's the most scary thing of all. So yeah, I guess the the hard part of it is like having to see how it plays out. Um, but it's a good thing that we have like 
social media to like actively update us on what's going on so we actually get like the real reality of what's going on and not just something that like I don't know we're being told is happening mm-hmm. Kevin yeah so I think uh to like Evelyn's point it's really interesting to see a war on like social media uh it's like because I think it adds like a different perspective normally when we get news about war it's through not a bias but i guess you can say a staged perspective where they're very selective with what they can say and what they can't say and there's obviously uh different inputs on like there's a story being told that and obviously that carries like different points of view as opposed to social media where we're seeing the actual thing like happening in that moment so it's like in a way free from bias as i think it's just really interesting to have a, a like a unique perspective on something happening like live right now unfolding like before our very eyes and also back to the topic of the sanctions, I think like the professor Dineri said in the article, it won't stop Russia from going to war, like that maybe war is inevitable, but how long the war lasts can be dictated by the severity of the sanctions. I agree. And do you guys think that the U.S. has done enough so far, if anyone wants to add into that? I almost think it's impossible to say like if we even can do enough. Like obviously we need to like support Ukraine as much as possible. But the reality is that Putin's, like, trigger-happy, and we have the very scary reality of, like, nuclear war, and whether or not, like, it's an empty threat, like, if you help Ukraine, we'll nuke you. It, we, it's almost impossible to tell if it's a bluff or not, because we really don't know the state that Putin is in, in all reality. So I think that the U.S. is should do more but the reality is is that i i can really say as just like some like an individual like what more could possibly be at this point in time yeah would anyone else like to add to that Uh, i don't well yeah like evelyn says i don't think there can ever be enough done right in order to like justify the amount of lives that are being lost but to the the credit of the ukrainians they're really holding it down they've become like a really impressive symbol of hope where everybody and literally everybody no matter how little experience to have are just ready to fight and aren't even the president who a lot of people had doubts in has really stood his ground and been at the front lines and yeah they're fighting tooth really and setting, nail yeah it's honestly really inspiring to see how like they're not going to let russia like take their sovereignty and it's really inspiring as well to see Zelensky like as like a leader like really rising to the occasion and he's showing like leadership skills that I don't think we see in a lot of world leaders sometimes like he's out there fighting with his people so I'm definitely with Kevin it's really it's really inspiring and like really empowering that the Ukrainians are fighting so hard and I really genuinely hope that they can fight back the Russians because that is like they deserve their sovereignty and they deserve to get like Putin's war out of their country and maintain like their like status as a country uh, without Russian influence. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just I think that no one really expected Ukraine to fight this hard like as long as they've lasted right now. And I think the latest thing that I heard was that they were starting to give weapons to the women and young teenagers. So it's just really intense just seeing how literally everyone in Ukraine, every civilian, like Kevin was saying is getting involved to fight for their country because it's the last thing that they have to hold on to right now. Yeah, I definitely agree. And my last question is, um, Brenda, have you been seeing the racist treatment of refugees online? And what do you think about this? Yeah, I think it's just really unfair because these people, they're refugees. They're literally just trying to survive right now. And the fact that there's racism involved in this, it's like, 
these people are just trying to make it out alive of this current situation that is so horrible and that fortunately for people in the U.S. we don't have to go through right now. We're not in their shoes, but we should try to imagine ourselves and just think they're with their children, they're with their family and friends. They're just trying to live the last minutes of their lives and hopefully survive. Yeah. Anybody else want to add to that? Yeah, I think like the, the racist treatment of refugees is incredibly unfortunate because it's essentially like people want to go to another country for a better life. So it's obviously, I mean, we don't know the situation of like all the refugees. I can understand people wanting to like, their hearts are going on like, oh, it's, you know, there's a war going on. So of course they need to like go somewhere else. But the, the refugees who are from like you know, North Africa or from like the Middle East who wanted to enter Ukraine, it's just really interesting how people, you know, they're going through these like situations that are equally terrible, like the Middle East and the conflicts there and everything. People have been leaving Syria since like the 2010s, probably even earlier than that, but that's just when I remember like becoming aware of that. So it's definitely disheartening to hear that, you know, people are like opening their doors to Ukrainians, which understandably so because of the situation with Russia, but it's really disheartening that they didn't do the same to people in similar situations just because of where they came from. And it's almost, it's quite similar to like America, honestly, like we open our like doors to like refugees who are from predominantly like white countries. And yet at the same time, we're like, if you're from Mexico or from, you know, the Middle East, like you get treated incredibly like in a very racist manner. I just think that it's understandable that, you know, I guess like America sees Ukraine and they're like, you know, middle class have internet access or widely middle class. I, I don't know the like social status of Ukrainians in general, but, you know, we see like middle class internet access, um, like white skinned people and like America as a whole, I can understand is like, oh, we should help them because we have these like underlying systemic like racist issues in our country that favor Ukrainians, I would argue, over like other people, which is again really disheartening. Um, I hope that as this situation continues on, we can like remedy these issues or like at least point out how wrong they are. Um, but for the time being, I think that there's so much going on that I think it's going to be difficult to tackle all these things at once. Yeah, and then Kevin, would you like to add anything? Yeah, so I think it's really incredible to see the rhetoric and the language being used when describe when describing these refugees from Ukraine as opposed to refugees from other countries, like Evelyn said. It's very funny how apparent it is, and it's almost like these people saying it don't even notice. I think the Bulgarian prime minister was saying how he was surprised it was happening, happening in Ukraine because these people are educated and civilized. And so it's just really interesting to see how sometimes they don't even notice that sort of implicit bias. I saw someone comment on a video saying how this, how Russia's actions towards Ukrainians made him angry and he realized that he didn't feel that same anger when he would see those same actions in like Middle Eastern countries. And he had to take a sec, he had to take a step back and realize sort of like implicit bias that he had within himself. So I think it's just interesting to see how like all of us react to a conflict like this as opposed to this is nothing new in places like the Middle East or Latin America. And a side note, sometimes it's the U.S. being that oligarch in mm -hmm. these countries. Definitely. And then next up in this issue, we have an article written by our news editor, Abhijit Rege, discussing parking on campus and some alternatives to help students. The article dives deep into the struggles students face when commuting to school and the disconnect students have with TAPS. The article also introduces the new app Pick Up and Park, which is a rideshare app free for students to use and find parking. 
Um, do you guys think that parking will be difficult with spring quarter most likely being in person? Um, do you think you'll be using this app in the future? If anyone would like to add? Uh, so I think parking is going to be very difficult, especially because we, the parking lot by uh, between Glenmore and Pentland and um, Dundee got taken away. It's not even being used. So there's less parking space now. And there's more students now than ever coming back and everyone has a car. And UCR is a commuter school for the most part, which means a lot of cars, a lot of traffic and parking really taps seems to not care at all about the students and they just care about receiving their fees. So it's pretty frustrating when you think about it, how they approach this whole topic. Yeah, I definitely agree, especially with the passes and stuff and how limited the gold plus package is to get um, access to the new parking structure. And the new parking structure is, isn't even that close to campus. It's like a pretty far walk. So I definitely agree. I think it's going to be harder. Yeah, I don't actually, I don't have a car currently, but I'm hoping to have one like towards the end of like this quarter and just looking at like the parking pass fees and everything, just like in preparation of like eventually having like access to a vehicle. It's kind of like, it's kind of crazy, honestly, because you're already paying like insurance for a car. You're already like paying tuition and everything. Like I, I can understand the necessity of like paying for a parking pass because there's already limited parking as it is, but I don't know. I see like we have this massive like area by North District that hasn't been used. I don't know if there's like a restriction on it or whatever, but I'm almost like, okay, well, what if we put like more parking there? Because the reality is like Kevin was saying, like we are a commuter school. A lot of people like drive to get to campus and we, we need to like take that into account. Like the school needs to start like thinking about, okay, well, we have all these people coming back in person. We need to start like really seriously thinking about like, where are we going to have people? Because you can't have people just like parking, you know, all the way down like University Village. And then that's the whole parking lots filling up. It's basically like, it's this major, like, it's gonna keep like growing and growing and growing as more people are like accepted and more people are driving and commuting that I think TAPS really needs to like take the time to organize what's going on and maybe even make it like a little less like a little less expensive like more affordable like more affordable parking and then more parking I think is like the main two issues that seem to be like at the forefront. Definitely, Brenda? Yeah, I have the campus apartments parking um, permit and I'm not a huge fan of it because I think during the weekday, you can park in certain blue lots, but until after 6 p.m. And I mean, I don't think a lot of students are at school after 6 p.m. unless they go to the library or they're eating out at the hub. Um, but then on the weekend, you can park all day for free in certain blue lots. Um, and again, I, there's barely anyone coming to campus on the weekday, on the weekends. Um, and also going back to the Glenmore situation, my friend lives by Glenmore and she's saying how there's been construction going on in the parking lot and so many people who, because Glenmore shares the parking with other um, of mm -hmm. the dorm structures and a lot of the people who live in the dorms and in Glenmore, they're literally just fighting each other just to find a parking spot in, I think it's lot 30, I'm pretty sure. Um, but they're literally just trying to find a parking spot anywhere and even on the street, which is already hard to find. And mm -hmm. I, the parking here is just a struggle. Fortunately, I haven't, I don't really, I mainly walk to campus since I live nearby. Um, but like with parking here, I think it is going to be very limited in spring quarter and it's just going to be more tough 
and, and rough for students to find available parking spaces. And I do think it's also interesting that we have the pickup now. The pickup and park app, yeah. Pickup and park app. I think that's interesting. And I think, you know, sharing it, I want to share with other people who don't, um, who need a commute, because I think it is like, it is going to help students find a way to on campus. Yeah, finding a parking spot, definitely. Because I think people were doing that before where they would just go up to someone and say, hey, can I drive you to your parking spot? So I think this app kind of makes it more streamlined um, so that students don't have to resort to like, I don't know, parking at a friend's house and walking all the way over or like risk getting a ticket somewhere. Um, moving on, Winter Solstice made a strong return this past Saturday and here to discuss her article is Assistant Radar Editor Brenda Hovell. Brenda describes the night as a wonderful gathering full of singing and dancing, only citing a few concerns with organization in the first half. Brenda, how exactly was the process of actually getting a wristband and into the event? So in the beginning, like I think in the morning they announced they would start giving out wristbands at 10 a.m. And people were already lining up, I think two hours before just to get the wristband. And it was just, it was a lot. <laughs> there was a lot of just waiting and the the huge line on, I think it was Pierce Lawn. Um, it was just starting to form. And I was surprised that they kept giving out wristbands until 5 p.m. So I'm not sure if that's because they had more than they could. I mean, like, I think they, wait, let me start. <laughs> no, don't worry. <laughs> um, I think because they were giving out wristbands until like 5 p.m., they either students weren't coming in like not many students were coming in to pick up wristbands or they just had a lot more wristbands so honestly when I went into the venue it looked around like 600 people were there which I think it didn't amount to the amount of people in bonfire because bonfire was just wild but I think in terms of the lines and getting into the venue for students it was a bit disorganized in the beginning because it seemed like members from ASPB were barely trying to figure out how to manage the lines and it was just kind of a bit disorganized and there needed to be a little more communication there. Um, do you think the organization played a large role in how the night went or did things eventually smoothen themselves out? I think once people were getting into the venue, things were smoothed out, but in the beginning it was just a lot of waiting and just kind of seeing what ASPB, ASPB members were going to tell students because I don't know, I think they wanted to like snake the line around, but then they ended up creating five individual lines to like check in, which just seemed kind of disorganized in a way. Um, but I do think once the students started getting into the gates, um, it started just feeling smoother in a way. So I think once people were getting into the venue, they were just trying to enjoy their time there. Definitely. And then did the rest of the panel go to Winter Solstice this year? I wasn't able to actually, I was out of town, um, but I did hear, I heard like mixed reviews. I heard a lot of people say they were really excited about seeing uh, like Thundercat especially because I'm, I'm not in that music scene, but I hear like he's like a really like well-known artist. Um, and then I also heard like just mixed reviews, I guess, in terms of like the lines and everything because some people were saying like a lot of people were trying to like cut in line or whatever. So at least for me, I'm, I'm a little bit bummed I missed it because it's like one of the first like big events on campus in a really long time because of the pandemic. Um, but I'm also kind of glad that like I, I didn't, I guess, because it sounded like a lot of work to get through the lines and everything and like the wristband process. Mm -hmm. So I was able to go, fortunately. <laughs> and so I was up at 10 a.m. and I got in line and I waited about an hour to get my wristband, which wasn't too bad. 
but I thought getting the wristband meant that it would be easier to get into the venue because it was just, oh, here's my wristband, here's my ID, boom, let's go. And so I showed up at around 6.30, opens, doors open, were supposed to open at 6, and so I got around, I got there around 6.30, and I waited about another hour, another hour, yeah, another hour, and so I had to wait for a while just to get in again, and by the time I started moving, things were easier once inside the venue, but getting in there was like the hardest part. Overall, it was a really nice experience, but from a logistics perspective, it was a bit of a mess, just a little bit, just because I didn't get the whole point of the wristband if we were still gonna wait in line afterwards. Another thing they gave out, they had a capacity of 2,500 people and they gave out 3,000 wristbands. And the reason they did that the reason they gave 500 over is because they count on people not going despite the fact that they have wristbands sometimes. So that's why it was a little bit of a mess too. Mm, I see. But I mean, it sounded like the performances were worth it and they were good. So I'm glad to hear that. Um, hopefully for Spring Splash, the organization is a bit better. Um, Finally, in our radar section for this issue, we have an article written by staff writer Elias Almarez Herrera discussing Kanye West's newest three-part documentary on Netflix called Genius. The article explains how the documentary shows a young Kanye West on the come-up of musical success as an MC in Chicago. The article also characterizes Ye as a multifaceted human being who has had to deal with mental health and fame all at the same time. Um, has any of you on the panel watched this documentary or are planning on it? And do you think this documentary will humanize Ye as an individual who is deeply troubled by mental illness? I am planning on watching it and I haven't gotten around to it, but I've seen some clips like on TikTok that show scenes from the show. And I think the most impressive thing is the fact that he has all this footage. For years, it's just been other celebrities talk about their interactions with Kanye West and you think sometimes, oh, maybe they're exaggerating a little bit. And to see all this footage that he has and the way he just was able to keep track of this. It's sort of like a video journal. And it's just really interesting to see. Maybe it won't uh, gain a lot of empathy for He won't gain a lot of empathy for himself, but it'll just show his journey. And I think that in a way is a way to relate to him and see that he is not just a musical genius people revere, um, although that's neither here nor there. It's just a way to see that, oh, he's just a normal guy going through the same stuff. He just happens to have multiple Grammys. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it'll be interesting to see just a more raw side of him because I feel like in the media, whenever he's portrayed, he's mainly like a controversial figure in the celebrity world. And not a lot of people are fans of, of him because of that. And I think it'll just be interesting just to see a closer view on him himself. And I didn't know that his mom's name is Donda. I hope I'm saying her name right. Yeah. But um, that's actually the newest name of his album that's coming out. And I think it's just interesting how he's like correlating the two and kind of honoring her memory because she did pass away. Um, but yeah, I think I am going to watch it because I am not, I'm not a fan of him, but it'll be interesting just to see how he portrays himself and just seeing how he's been navigating his way through life and through media. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with Brenda. I don't listen to Kanye West either, but I, I watched this, like, three-hour documentary that some, like, a YouTuber made on him, uh, even though I don't listen to his music, just because he's such, a, like, an interesting person in the world of music, and like Brenda said, like, he's relatively, like, controversial, but he's made, like, such amazing strides in the music industry. I will, also, I will say, though, that it seems like an interesting time for this documentary to come out, especially since he's going through, like, the divorce from Kim Kardashian and everything, and how the situation with that is, like, really, I don't know, it seems kind of like an evasion of privacy in some ways, like, Kanye is, like, I mean, I, I, I can definitely sympathize, like, he's, I can almost imagine, like, he's probably going through a really hard time because he's going through a divorce and, like, his ex-wife is so in the public eye and he's so in the public eye that it's definitely, I can imagine it's probably incredibly difficult for him. But I feel like, you know, some of the things that he's been saying, like, about his, like, daughter North and, like, about and about Kim and, like, Pete Davidson and everything, I guess it's, like, kind of an interesting time for this documentary that will humanize him kind of comes out. Um, so I'm definitely planning on watching it, but I think I'll, like, kind of take it with a grain of salt because of everything, like, going down with, like, his divorce from Kim Kardashian and everything. Yeah, and then lastly, does he deserve our sympathy considering his outburst online towards his children or family, considering his mental illness and stuff like that, or no? I don't know if maybe deserves uh, empathy is the right word for it, but at least we can understand where he's coming from, and I think being able to tell your own story from your perspective counts for a lot. Oftentimes, when you're in the public eye, you don't get to explain yourself, and so everyone is sort of jumping to conclusions on what they see, even though they don't have the whole story. And so maybe not empathy, but we'll understand where he's coming from now. And I think that counts for a lot. Sometimes you just, maybe you don't need to be empathized with, but just to see where you're coming from, even if like we disagree. Yeah, yeah like getting both sides of the story. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's all for our newsroom episode today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics covered today, read the articles on our website, highlandernews.org, and catch us on Instagram at the Highlander UCR. Thank you for listening in, and we'll catch you next week.